Well, thank you, Chris. Now you all know more about me than I do. <laughs> Christmas is over. Can I hear a sigh of relief from all the ladies? Uh, I think I should probably grant a uh, trip every year at this time of year uh, for one to Hawaii for Shirley, my wife. She would really benefit from that and enjoy that. But her sister is here, uh, and I think they get to go to uh, Biltmore Estate uh, tomorrow as a consolation prize. Well, it's good to see you this morning, and uh, before we sort of totally leave Christmas behind, I want to talk a little bit about why this holiday means so much to me personally. Now, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, uh, the city of brotherly shove, I called it. Uh, I remember most of my friends were either Jewish, Catholic, or nothing. I happened to grow up in a family of nothing, and actually believed in nothing, but as typical Americans, we celebrated Christmas, uh, made a big deal out of it with all its gusto, and I always felt a little bit cheated when we uh, did not have a white Christmas. And I remember also being a little envious of my best friend, uh, Steve, who was Jewish, because they had eight days of gift giving at Hanukkah, and we only had one at Christmas. I thought they got the better end of that deal. But I also remember that December 26th, to me, was the saddest day of the year. I mean, after all the anticipation and hype of Christmas and all the excitement of getting all the presents, how in the world could I survive another 364 days until it came around again? <coughs> well, uh, let's talk a little bit about what life is. Is there life after Christmas? Not, this isn't December 26th, but December 30th, and so let's take a look at that um, today. Now, um, as I mentioned, growing up in a religiously nothing family, uh, I didn't go to church uh, very much when I was growing up. My dad didn't go to church. He was my example. Uh, I didn't want to go to church. Uh, my dad always said that Saturday uh, are, is for work at home uh, in the yard and all that kind of stuff, and Sunday was for golf. And so he had 18 reasons why he wouldn't go to church uh, every Sunday, and I agreed with him. Somewhere along the line, though, my uh, brother Tom, who is three years older than me, found faith. Uh, I thought he had found insanity, actually, uh, but he had found faith in Jesus, and he had just been to a Christian conference where he got all fired up about the Lord Jesus and sort of grabbed me, pulled me into his room, and told me what it was all about. He said it wouldn't take long, so I listened. And he explained that God loved me very much and wanted me to have a tremendous life. Now, I remember distinctly thinking at that moment, yeah, right. You see, high school had not been a good time for me, and so I had become not only skeptical, but cynical. I would describe myself at that time as being a uh, scientific-minded, pseudo-intellectual, evolutionary thinking brat, <laughs> really. Uh, I thought I knew everything, uh, and uh, to me, Christianity was about as relevant as ballet and opera to my life, you know, so, you know, but I listened to my brother anyway, and he told me that the reason why I wasn't experiencing God's love for me was because I had rejected God and had chosen to live a, a life independent from him. Uh, he actually used what I thought was a very archaic word to describe my condition. He called it sin. Sin, I thought at that time. Does anybody use that term, really, anymore? Um, but he was right. I couldn't uh, argue with his diagnosis of my problem. That was my life. He also told me that Jesus had died for my sins so that I wouldn't have to. And that's a profound thought, really. 
Uh, and he also told me that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, that was a real hard one for me to swallow because I had never seen people rising from the dead and all that. But anyway, I listened to him, and he said, now, all this information is not going to do you any good uh, unless you make the choice to admit your sinful independence from God that I needed to turn away from that kind of life and, in fact, to trust Jesus to come into my life and change me. Now, that was a big question. I had to ask myself, did I want to be changed? I wasn't so sure. You know, sometimes we don't want to change even though we're miserable because at least what we're experiencing is familiar. Change is kind of scary. Well, I told my brother that I wasn't even sure that God existed at this point. I was not ready to make this kind of decision, et cetera, et cetera. But my brother was undaunted, so he grabbed all his halo head friends and started praying for me. Uh, I realized later on I didn't have a chance, uh, but that's what he did. He really was a great brother uh, in that way. Well, fast forward to my Christmas story. At five to six months later, it was Christmas Eve of that year. I, uh, my mom was in the kitchen cooking. My dad was in one of the back bedrooms wrapping presents. My brother was off with his girlfriend somewhere. I was wandering around the house very bored. Now, my mom at that time would always put these decorative booklets out, uh, and they were booklets about Christmas carols and the story behind them. I'd never read any of them. They, they looked kind of ornate and weird, so I didn't. But that particular Christmas Eve, I picked one up and looked at it and opened it up and saw these words. To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy. It was like a sledgehammer hit my brain. I hurried back to my room slammed the door shut, locked it, plopped down on my bed. I started complaining to the God I wasn't even sure existed. God, here in America, we've really screwed up this whole Christmas season. We're so wrapped up with the tree and the lights and the gifts and all that kind of stuff, but it's supposed to be about Jesus. And I stopped, horrified. I'm starting to sound like my brother. What is going on here? Well, before I knew it, I was telling God about how I'd messed up my life, and if he could change me and give me the kind of love and joy my brother had, I wanted him to do that. And so that Christmas Eve, I welcomed Jesus into my life. I remember running around the house like a nut. Um, I, I knew something profound had happened, but I wasn't sure what it was. I just, I just felt really good. In fact, to be honest with you, it felt as if about a thousand gallons of raw sewage had just been flushed out of my life. I know it's a little crude, but that's what it felt like. I will never forget that Christmas. But all too soon, I had to go back to the university. I was attending uh, Penn State University. I called it State Penn. I was incarcerated there for four years and then paroled with a degree in meteorology, a bachelor's degree. I always think it's appropriate that a bachelor's degree in meteorology is called a BS. <laughs> well, we won't go there. This is church, you know. Well, how would I describe those first few years uh, as after that life-changing Christmas? Uh, a lot of struggle, a lot of pain, uh, interrupted by occasional moments of joy. But unfortunately, nobody really warned me that there would be a struggle after I opened my heart to Christ. Yes, there is life after Christmas, but it's not a Courier and Ives print. It is not a Thomas Kincaid painting, nor is it a Jackie Lawson 
e-card. It's a battle. Before mankind even appeared on this earth, there was a cosmic war going on, a battle of epic proportions. This is the battle between the kingdom of light and the domain of darkness, between the Christ and the Antichrist, between good and evil, between truth and deception, between the true prophets of God and the false prophets. See, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, to mankind and the angels it was and is a time of celebration and worship. To us, it's an incredible act of love that God would come to planet Earth as a man. To the powers of darkness, however, Christmas was an act of war. God coming to earth as a baby, totally vulnerable and helpless, a lamb, the lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world, the lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world, the lamb who is a lion, the king of all kings and lord of all lords, a savior and a warrior. Jesus coming to earth means life and joy, but people, it also means war. The war is real, and you and I are in it, whether we're happy about that or not. And the part we play really means something in the grand scheme of things. Yes, there is life after Christmas, but life on earth may be very different from the way you have perceived it. Yes, planet earth is our home away from home, but earth is not a playground, it's a battleground. Maybe this would be a good time to pray. Will you join me? Dear Heavenly Father, I didn't realize that when I put my trust in Jesus that I was enlisting in your army. I didn't realize that my world, my street, my workplace, my school, my church are part of a war zone. I guess I could try and go AWOL or become missing in action, but to do so would mean I would automatically become a prisoner of war. That's not cool. So once I get over the initial shock of what I signed up for, would you equip me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus? I want to hear you, my commanding officer, say to me one day, well done, good and faithful servant. So uh, today, very briefly, I want to look at what I call the preamble of the armor of God. We're talking about a war here, and it's very important that you understand the principles in this preamble, because if you try to put on the armor of God, which is Ephesians 6, starting in verse 14, without studying this preamble and understanding it, I guarantee you that your chance of success in spiritual battle will be slim to none. We need to understand these principles. And so let's look at the scripture together. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. This is out of the New Living. A final word. <clears throat> Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies or schemes of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. So the first point we want to pull out of this passage is this. Know where your strength in battle comes from. Know where your strength in battle comes from. The Apostle Paul, inspired by God, wrote, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So we can look for strength in battle from two basic sources, either from ourselves or from God. Let me shoot straight with you. If we try and fight in our own strength, we will lose every time. Amen. Every time. 
Now, this is not only the time where there are bowl games in college football, but the NFL season ends today. The playoffs are coming soon. And all season long, NFL teams are fighting, are playing to make the playoffs. But not only to play in the playoffs, but to play at home in the playoffs, to have the home field advantage. Historically, some teams, like the New England Patriots, whom we all know and love, are almost unbeatable at home during the playoffs. Now, for us, if we trust in our own intelligence, problem-solving abilities, experience, strength of personality, street smarts, or whatever you might call it, that gives the enemy, our enemy, the distinct home field advantage over us. You simply cannot defeat evil by human strength. No matter how committed, determined, <clears throat> excuse me, or well-intentioned you might be. A spiritual war requires spiritual weapons. Let me say that again. A spiritual war requires spiritual weapons. So how do we fight in order to win? Well, we're to be strong in the Lord and in the, his mighty power or in the strength of his might. Now, what does it mean to be strong in the Lord? Well, in order to know what it means to be strong in the Lord, we have to know what it means to be in the Lord in the first place. And Fortunately, the Apostle Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 1, and he lays it out very beautifully, you can read it, to summarize, here's what it says about who we are in the Lord. That is, what is our identity? See, when we look in the mirror, <clears throat> we see something. When we think about our past, we think of something else about ourselves. But what does God see is true about us? Folks, that's what we need to know. Because who we are is who God says we are. And this is what he says. <clears throat> he says that in Christ we are saints, that we're holy ones. We're blessed with God's grace and peace. God has given us every spiritual blessing that he has for us. He's chosen us long before we were born to be holy and blameless before him. Ages ago, he determined to adopt us into his family so that we're now his children. Now, that's enough to keep you going for 2019. Say, so I'm a child of God. Can I hear you say that? I'm a child of God? That's really cool. I'm a child of God. Wow. You know, I heard somebody say one time, why should I feel like I need to climb the ladder of success when in Christ I've already been raised up and seated at the right hand of the Father? Why do I have to try to be something when I'm already told I'm a child of the living God? See, you already are <clears throat> someone very, very special. Now, uh, we have been bought out of slavery, it says, to sin and forgiven of all our sins through his grace that was poured out on us and over us. So how many of our sins are forgiven? In Christ, all of them. Past, present, and future. In Christ. That could take you through 2020, 2021 maybe. And we have an amazing inheritance waiting for us in heaven that will blow us away when we see it. Those are just a few of the things that are true of us in Christ. The rest of the New Testament talks about a lot of other stuff. Now, you might think, well, if I believed all those things about me, I'd become arrogant. No, actually, if you don't believe those things, you'll be defeated. Amen. All those things listed in Ephesians 1 that I just summarized are not ours because of anything we've done. They are all by God's wonderful gift of grace to us. We didn't deserve them. We didn't earn them. God just gave them to us. Now, do you believe those things are true of you? Are you living each day in the truth of those truths? See, that's what it means to be strong in the Lord. Now, unfortunately, many of us have bought a pack of lies, I believe. We've come to believe some very sub-Christian views of ourselves. Oh, I'm just a sinner. I hope I make it to heaven someday. 
God loves other better Christians, but he's sick of me, disappointed in me. He barely tolerates me. I can't do anything right. If we're all sheep, then I guess I'm just the black sheep of God's flock. Brothers and sisters, that kind of thinking and talking has nothing to do with a Christian faith. It may sound humble, but it's not. It may sound noble, it's not. It's not Jesus talk, it's devil talk. That's exactly the way the enemy wants you to think about yourself because he knows how invincible you can be if you are strong in the Lord. Now, do we sin? Of course we do. Just ask your spouse or your kids or something. We're not talking about sinless perfection. We're talking about a dynamic transformation of our heart. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is what? A new creation, or as they say in Texas, a new critter. (laughs) Yes, we are. We're new. So believe it, folks. Well, in addition, we're to be strong in God's mighty power. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul prays that our eyes would be opened to understand the immeasurable greatness of his power. Listen to this. Toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, God's great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Folks, listen to this. This is astounding. That the power of God that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead and took him all the way up into heaven is working in you and me in Christ right now. That ought to... That ought to kick. That ought to kick us right in the wow part of our brain, you know? That's an amazing, amazing thing. Well, so in summary, the first key to waging and winning spiritual battles is to know who you are and the amazing riches that Christ has given us and to know the unbelievable power that's at work in us. That's the first part. Now, if we know these things, Suddenly, we move from the arena of feeling like a victim in life to being a victor in life. Christ has come. Christ is victor. He's disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them. Jesus came to undo and destroy the works of the devil. And folks, you're in him, and he's in you. You're really tight. We're really tight. That is good news. So that's the first point. What's the second one? Secondly, know who your real enemy is. As much as it pains me to have to say this, the Alabama Crimson Tide are a force to be reckoned with. They're very well coached. Their recruiting is brilliant. Their talent is off the charts. Uh, It's going to be a good game. Clemson versus Alabama. Now, actually, the biggest game of the year is January 1st, Penn State versus Kentucky. But, you know, we won't. Anyway, um, I've never been in their locker room of the, the Crimson Tide, nor have I ever been to one of their practices. But there are two things that I can guarantee are true about them. First, they know who they are and their track record of winning. But they're always working on making themselves better. They have confidence knowing how strong they are But they're not deceived into thinking they just kind of ooze their way into victory. They work hard. But secondly, they're very aware of their opponent's strengths and vulnerabilities. College teams watch hours and hours, tons of film about the other team. Uh, And when they're practicing, they practice against their own practice squad that tries to imitate, so to speak, their next opponent. 
Now, uh, even though they're playing against themselves sort of in practice, I, I'm certain that Alabama never lost track or sight of the true enemy, <laughs> the opponent, Oklahoma, now Clemson. Now, when we talk about knowing who our real enemy is, this might at first glance seem like a no-brainer. But actually, when it comes to real life, we get this part wrong all the time. Here's what it says. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies or schemes of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against rulers, evil rulers, and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Well, to put it bluntly, people are not our real enemies. People are not our real enemies. We are not to be found fighting against them. In fact, we are to love those who oppose us, hate us, make fun of us, drive us crazy, criticize us, attack us, and seek to discredit us. Um, by the way, just a casual question, how'd you do in that area over the holidays? It's tough, isn't it? Trying to keep the real battle from being horizontal to being elsewhere. Now, I don't think it's a mistake or a coincidence that right before this section of Ephesians 6, in chapter 4, 5, in the first part of chapter 6, the Apostle Paul talks about life with some of our <coughs> excuse me, closest relationships. In chapter 4, he talks about life in the church. In chapter 5, he talks about life with those outside the church, as well as between uh, husbands and wives. Early in chapter 6, he talks about life between parents and kids, and also on the job between employers and employees. And then he caps that all off by saying, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Whether it be in the church or in the world, at home or on the job, we're easily drawn into angry disagreements, fights, quarrels, conflicts, disputes, factions, feuds, and divorces with people. That's exactly what the devil wants. That's exactly what the devil wants. He wants us to be fighting with each other. In that case, we have no strength, no energy, no time to invest in the real battle. We never even make it onto the real battlefield because we're fighting the wrong battle. Meanwhile, the devil continues his disruptive, disunifying, dividing and destroying work uncontested. Paul says that we're fighting, and that, and that word means hand-to-hand -hand combat. That's what it means. With evil rulers, authorities of the unseen world, mighty powers in this dark world, and evil spirits in heavenly places. That's what the real battle is. Now, first, it may sound really, really scary, and you might be thinking, well, that's okay, Rich. I'll stick with fighting people. Thank you very much. At least I can see them. Well, it's true that people can be real, a real pain. Just ask someone who knows you well. But people are not the real enemy, though they can be tools of the enemy. The problem is God is not going to give you strength for the wrong battle. If you are determined to fight people, you're on your own. Good luck. In our dealings with people, when they say or do stuff that offends us, we're not, a, not to strike back, but we're to forgive. In Ephesians 4, at the end of it, it says this. It says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, here's the positive side, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, what does it mean to forgive? It means to give someone a gift, okay? Think about Christmas present. You're giving people a gift they don't deserve. You're canceling out the debt of what they owe you, okay? And you're sending them away free. 
giving people a gift they don't deserve, of canceling out the debt of what they owe you and sending them away for free. Now, people don't deserve that kind of merciful treatment. I know. Neither did you, neither did I. But that's the whole point, see, that just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. What we didn't deserve, God gave. What we didn't deserve, what other people don't deserve, we give to them, and that is forgiveness. Now, if you forgive from the heart and let the offender free, you can trust God to take care of any payback that needs to happen. God knows what that looks like if it needs to come, but it just must never come from you. If you don't forgive, you'll end up paying, and the devil wins. Not good. Well, I want to tell you a story about forgiveness. Um, I already warned my son, Brian, that I was going to tell this story. Uh, that's the nice thing about having kids. You're, you're, all your sermon illustrations get increased, and um, Brian just always wants me to make sure that... Now, tell them this didn't happen like a couple weeks ago. You know, this, is, this was a, a number of years ago. And it takes place when Luke, our adopted son, was four years old. He had been living his entire life in an orphanage in Thailand. Uh, he lived in a big room with all these, uh, these beds in there and hundreds of kids in the orphanage with just a few caregivers. And so I'm sure it was survival of the fittest, the fastest, the loudest, the strongest, whatever it might be. Uh, tragically, some of us actually still live life that way, as if we came out of an orphanage. But we don't need to live that way. Anyway, uh, once we brought Luke home, uh, Brian, who was about six years old <clears throat> at the time, and Luke roomed together, a uh, room with bunk beds, Luke had never lived in an actual home before, so he had never developed any sense of boundaries at all. Everything was open season for him. Everything was fair game. Uh, Everything belonged to him, as far as he knew. That tendency was an incubator for conflict. That's an understatement. Now, of our three biological kids, uh, once they all realized that Luke's presence in any game they were playing was going to be a disaster, they had to take some kind of action, because if they were building something, he'd knock it down. If they were playing a board game, he'd knock the pieces off. And so what they decided to do was they simply locked him out uh, and kept him on the other side of the door while they contentedly played together. Now, I'm all for healthy boundaries, but they weren't letting poor Rudolph play in any of their reindeer games. (laughs) So this had to stop, and I told our three kids so. So, to their credit, they repented and did their best to allow him in. But Luke is in the, uh, on the autism spectrum. He's also ADHD. Uh, that's not a good foundation for building relationships or learning how to play with others, but that's what it was. Anyway, somewhere along the line, uh, for whatever reason, Luke, Luke took to breaking all of Brian's sports trophies. So, his room was decorated with headless basketball trophies, bodiless soccer trophies all over the place. Um, Brian was not a happy camper. One day he came to me very upset and told me, Luke is always getting into my stuff. He ruins everything. I can't stand it anymore. I don't like it and I don't like him. Brian, I just wish you'd been honest about how you felt. (laughs) That was pretty direct. Well, I knew that it would be futile to kind of sit Luke down and have Brian talk to him because of his Uh, mental issues, he'd either be looking another direction or maybe walk away. So we had to come up with another plan. So uh, I suggested to Brian that he sit in a chair uh, and that he'd be facing the bunk beds. And imagine that Luke was sitting on the lower bunk looking at him, giving him full attention, full eye contact, listening to everything he said. 
You know, despite appearances, Luke was not the enemy. He was Brian's brother. And somehow Brian needed to find his way to forgiving him through this mess. The devil always wants to divide and conquer. God wants to bring reconciliation and loving unity. So um, after Brian sort of got over the initial awkwardness of talking to Luke who wasn't really there, <clears throat> he started to pour out everything. He, he let Luke have, with, have it with both barrels, really. Um, every bit of frustration and anger, helplessness, every bit of pent-up hatred came out. And after Brian had emptied his gun, so to speak, Brian just sort of sat there. So I quietly said to him, I said, well, can you tell Luke now that you forgive him? Brian nodded and expressed about as sweetly and tenderly as only a child can do, that he forgave Luke for all he had done. So Brian went upstairs, and I went off and did something else, and about an hour later, I grabbed Brian and said, what you been up to? And he said, well, actually, I spent the last 45 minutes playing with Luke, something he had never done in his life. See, Brian had fought the right battle and won. Forgiveness is one of our, one of our most powerful weapons in spiritual battle. Now, the second story, because I, I want you to get out of this silly mentality that spiritual battle is scary, and it's not for me, and I'm not going to do it. Okay? Here's a story. And, and I'm telling stories about my kids because, actually, young people, children, can understand this stuff. And in a lot of ways, they can apply it better than we do as grown-ups. So here's the story. Uh, many children, as you know, have what are called imaginary friends. Uh, highly imaginative children, as well as those who are lonely, uh, especially can gravitate toward this kind of situation. Now, there's nothing wrong with a uh, little boy or girl <clears throat> gathering all his stuffed animals or her stuffed animals or dolls or army figures, whatever, and pretending that they're the sergeant or they're the uh, teacher and there's a classroom and all that kind of thing. That, that's, that's not problematic, but it does become a problem when the so-called imaginary friend begins to talk back to the child and a relationship develops. Then parents and grandparents should be alarmed. These kinds of things are neither imaginary nor are they friends. One summer I was preaching uh, at a Bible camp in Erie, Pennsylvania. There's about a thousand people there, uh, adults and kids and grandparents, and they all brought their RVs and uh, their uh, tents and camped out and had a great time listening to God's word for a week and, and uh, enjoying each other. Our family, uh, minus Luke, who was not with us yet at that time, uh, were crammed in this little room in a farmhouse on the property. It was a little tight, but it was okay. Uh, and one evening, right before lights out, Michelle, our daughter, who's here, and she can verify this, uh, she's probably six or seven years old, she says, Daddy, I have an imaginary friend. Well, knowing what I know, there were sirens going off in my brain at that moment. Uh, but I didn't want to blow it by blurting something stupid out, so I did the right thing. I asked the Lord what I should do. Uh, and he said, just have Mich Michelle explain what was going on. And so she did. She said, well, <clears throat> Daddy, her name is Becca, and she's a little orphan girl. And she lives in this house and wants to be my friend and come and stay in our house with us. Creepy, really creepy. Inside, I was thinking, there ain't no way this side of hell, this thing is going to be in my, daughter, my daughter's friend. 
And it sure ain't going to live in our house. When I get mad, I start using ain't a lot. It's a good word. The Lord gave me grace to explain it to Michelle this way. Honey, sometimes the bad angel and his nasty friends put on costumes to appear to be something they're not. Becca is not a little orphan girl. She is a demon in disguise. And you're going to have to tell her to leave and not come back. Okay, now I'm gritting my teeth like this, you know, because I'm really angry. And she says, okay, Daddy. And so she did. Now, I went into the bathroom retreating because I was really hot at that moment. And thankful. Um, you know, imagine for a moment if Michelle had never told me about that. And, or imagine that she told me, but I said something like, oh, that's cute, sweetheart. I bet you'll be good buddies. The whole trajectory of Michelle's life could have been changed for the worse. I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. See, it, it pains me that there are many parents whose view of the world does not ad adequately contain the reality of the spiritual world. And you walk into your kid's room in the middle of the night and they're crying because they're scared to death. They've seen something in there. And so you flip on the light and you open the closet door and you look under the bed and see, see, there's nothing here, honey. Go back to sleep. And so you shut the light off and close the door and leave. The kid's terrified. Just because kids have an imagination doesn't mean that everything they see or experience is imaginative. A lot of it's real. Amen. And we need to realize that. In fact, with Michelle, starting at age three, I taught her that Jesus is bigger than the bad angel. And she learned that at a very early age. Well, uh, after I went in the bathroom and cooled off a little bit, I, I felt the Lord giving me a word of wisdom. So I came back and said, you know, sweetheart, to Michelle, you know how sometimes little girls like to have secrets. And so if Becca comes back and says, hey, let's just keep this a secret from the grown-ups, you know, just you and me, you tell Becca again to leave in the name of Jesus. And she says, okay, Daddy, I will. And I checked with her six weeks later, and Becca had never come back, uh, and that was over. Now, you say, well, that, I've never had that kind of happen. I've never done that sort of thing. But was, did that sound really hard for me to do that? It wasn't really hard at all, nor was it scary. It was a battle that had to be fought, though. And we need to be aware of the fact that there are crucial moments in the life of our children, lives of our children, and our grandchildren, when these kind of things happen. And if we handle them according to God's Word and according to the Lord, we can see, almost like flipping a switch on a, on a train rail, the life goes this way. If you don't flip it, it goes that way. Those are important, important moments. <clears throat> well, I could go on and on. Got lots more stories, but I won't do that um, because stoning is found in the Bible. I know, I know you want to follow the Bible, so I don't want to be stoned. Um, well, point three, know that you are not to fight this battle alone. That's the third point. The conclusion of this preamble to the armor of God reads, Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor, so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Now, there's three very obvious observations here that I just want to touch on but not explain. First, every piece of armor is important to resist the devil. Each piece has a powerful purpose. So you can read Ephesians 6 and learn what that armor is. Secondly, there are days that are more evil than others. And since we never know when those days are going to happen, we need to be prepared all the time. And third, the goal when the dust settles and the smoke clears is for you and me to be found standing firm. 
unmoved from the ground that we are protecting in our lives, our marriage, our family, our home, etc. Now, these are all very important points, but there's one that I want to hit on, and then we'll conclude with this. In this passage of Ephesians 6, the word you, Y-O-U, that you see there or is implied there is not singular, but plural. Okay? Very, very important. This is not a me and Jesus have it covered sort of thing. The Lone Ranger had Tonto, but spiritual Lone Rangers are Tonto. Tonto means foolish in Spanish. We absolutely need God, and we desperately need each other. There is no spiritual Lone Ranger that is thriving spiritually. If you're alone and not connected to the body of Christ well, you're not doing well spiritually. It's just not possible for that to happen. We need to be reminded of who we are. We need encouragement. We need prayer coverage. We need to have people with us and around us when life plays hardball. We need comfort when we're grieving. We need to be confronted when we're sinning. We need a crowd to cheer us on when we're stepping out in faith. Yeah, go for it. Tom Brady never won a Super Bowl by himself. Takes a team. We are vulnerable when we're alone. We were never meant to make it on our own. The young, the elderly, the sick, the wounded, the discouraged are all very vulnerable. But every one of us is vulnerable at times, and the family of God is designed to come around us to enable us to stand firm together. This is not negotiable, people. We all need each other. Beware when someone in your circle of Christian friendships, whether it be your community group or whatever it might be, seems to be drifting away or is elusive or evasive or doesn't return calls or doesn't show up for meetings. It's very possible that he or she is being lured into isolation by the enemy. So he'll pick you off like a sniper. The devil's intentions are not noble. The reasons for the individual's absence from fellowship can seem very legitimate to them. But those with discernment can see right through it, what's really going on. The Roman army, when they would march out as an infantry, formed what was called a phalanx. And this was like this tightly knit group of soldiers, uh, and they're just arrayed in battle gear. It's Ephesians 6, really, that battle armor, with their shields out and their spears pointed out. And they would march together. When they did that, they were invincible. They could not be taken down. That's a picture of how the body of Christ is to work together. We're going to finish up this morning with a video clip from South Africa. It's a sort of a parable of this principle uh, from nature. And so enjoy it. It's about seven minutes long. It is an amazing video. Let's run the video. Huge buffalo. It's a huge buffalo. No, they're too young. The one's gone already. 
They're crouching. She's crouching. Gonna do. She's going for him. She caught him. Oh, she did. She got him. Maybe this gun is just popped up buffalo yet. Oh, my God. God, did you see that? Oh, my God. Unbelievable. I'm shaking, I can't even believe this. Yeah, the buffalo are coming to help this one now, watch. They're too late. They'll come and help this baby, watch. They're too late. Can they help him out, Frank? Yeah, they can. He's still alive, you think? Oh, he's still alive. Russell, Russell for Frank. They're trying to drag him out. They're dragging him out. Hulle nou net een kleinkie gevang. Hier is lekker action hier zo, jong. Hulle het een kleinkie hier zo in die water en die trop is bezig om nader te kop. Ja, positief. Hulle het een klein wappeltie gevang hier zo. Hier is een krokodil hier, too. Yeah, there's a crocodile look. I've got a crocodile look in Clanky. The crocodile is coming out of his side. I've checked through the barn as the crocs trying to grab the baby. Yes. Look at this. The crocodile's taking that baby away. Oh, my God. They're two crocodiles. They're going to lose it. Oh, my God. Oh, they're going to fight over it. Because I'm shit. Oh, my God. Oh, he's coming from the crocodile. Oh, look at those. Oh. The lions have won. The lions have won. The lions have won. Give a look at all those buffalo coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're going to come and try and chase the lion, but I think they're too late. I think they're right. <laughs> Too late. Oh, look at the teeth. Look at the teeth, Jay. You're too late. You're too late. 
guys, you cannot believe what's going on here. There's a big paddy here between lions, crocodiles, and buffalo. Whoa. He swatted at him and kicked at him. He's kicking at him. Look. He's kicking at him. Ooh, they got him surrounded. You got the lion on him, right? The calf's still alive. Yeah, it's trying to get away. It's standing up. Gee, they chased him away. Boy, when you see the uh, herd of Cape Buffalo coming in, you just want to cheer. It's like, you know, this is, this is really what the body of Christ is to be, you know. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil together. Well, in conclusion, remember, know how God sees you, who you really are in Christ. Fight the right battles. Learn to forgive people. Stay connected with God's people. Fight the good fight, brothers and sisters. It's worth it. You can do this. In Christ and in community, you can win. No, you will win. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for uh, putting us on this earth to reach people, not to fight with them. To forgive when we've been hurt, but also to stand firm against the schemes of the evil one. Lord, I thank you that you have given us the full armor of God that will be able to stand firm against all the schemes and taking up the shield of faith by which we'll be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles. Lord, we're in Christ together. We're invincible in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts. Lord, that you would give us hope for this next coming year, no matter how tough it might be, because you've already won the war so we can win the battles. And I thank you in Jesus' name.